be with you this morning. This morning we come to the last of the 12 so-called minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, The minor prophet we are going to be looking at today is Malachi, the last book of the Bible. And recall that the only reason these prophets are known as minor is not because of the unimportance of their message, but because of the relative brevity of their writing. Um, Malachi is speaking to a country, Israel, uh, that is beaten down, it's discouraged, uh, the leaders are corrupt, the people are lethargic, they are cynical, they are casual in their worship, and Malachi has a very direct word from the Lord to deliver to God's people. The book is intense, it's sometimes overwhelming. When I was studying this book over the last couple of weeks, uh, several times I had to get up out of my chair and walk around the house or walk outside and, uh, and ponder what I was just reading. So uh, it's intense. It's some, in some ways, it's a very tough book. But I want you to get this one idea. We're going to go through six disputations, six arguments in the book. But the overarching idea, I believe, that will serve us best, and I believe this is true, uh, taken from the book of Malachi is that we need to get a better grip as Christians on the personality of the Lord, the personality of the triune God. Um, The book has tough edges to it, as does the Lord. He's edgy. He's not roundy and safe. And if we get a grip on the personality of God, how He feels about things, the intensity of His emotions, the intense feelings He has about His people, it will change your spiritual life. It will change your spiritual life because as you go through this life and you focus on the personhood of God, on the personality of God, things He likes, things He hates, things He loves, things He delights in and despises and doesn't care about, uh, people will grow smaller and smaller and the Lord will grow bigger and bigger. The personhood of God being in the forefront of your mind will change your life because you'll be living more purely and more cleanly for the Lord whom we are to love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's the big message I believe that Malachi would have for us. Get a bigger grasp on the personality of the Lord. That will change your life. Get a grip on His personality as far as we are able in our limited humanity. So before we get into the specifics of the writing, let me pray. Father, a beautiful morning you've given us. Let us not be casual in thankfulness to you for giving us the privilege of gathering in this place, for the privilege of enjoying your sunshine and the warmth of your temperatures that you've given to us this day and the breezes and all the things we enjoy. I thank you for our ability even to get out of bed and come to this place. Thank you for the technology we enjoy to be able to gather together, as it were, not only in person here, but virtually, where your word will not be limited in its effectiveness. And I pray that you would guard my mouth, guard my mind and my heart, and help me to speak your word rightly, Lord. Help me to rightly divide your word, because it is of crucial importance in our lives. For your glory, I ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Jesus is all over this book in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. Jesus is all over it. The roundy softness of Jesus, which is a good thing in the New Testament, 
when he lamented over Jerusalem and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not have it. He describes himself in feminine terms of his love for his people, which is very interesting. Jesus was so comfortable in his manhood, in his humanity, that he likened himself to the tenderness of a mother. At the same time, that same Jesus that we saw in that section of Matthew, we see in John 2, making a whip out of cords, turning over uh, the money changers' uh, uh, purses and turning over the tables in anger because zeal for his, his father's house consumed him. He was furious because the people had turned the temple into a place of business. That's the edgy part of who Jesus is. He's both. And here in Malachi, we're going to see the same thing. As I said earlier, there are six disputations in Malachi, and each one of these could be a separate sermon in and of itself. It's like a court case. Each of these six things is like a court case where God makes a claim against his people or God makes a claim about himself. Uh, the people rebut. The people rebut what he says. And then God, through Malachi, um, gives evidence to the claim. It might be considered as a court case, the Lord God versus the priests and the people of Israel. This is the case that the Lord has against his people. He's very upset. He's very angry. But let's not be too discouraged because in the last section of this book, we'll see that there's a remnant of people who seriously take their relationship with the Lord and act upon it. He recognizes those people. We're going to get there as well. So let's start in verse 1 of Malachi. Chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle of the word. The oracle is just a divine revealed message. It is something given by God to his people via a human instrument, in this case the prophet Malachi. Verse 2, the Lord says, I have loved you. This is the first disputation. The Lord says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Now picture this, Malachi is at the temple, which is very likely the way this was delivered to the people. It's not a letter, it's a recording of a series of disputations Malachi has had with the people. So picture this, he's probably at the temple, standing outside, and people are gathered as they do day after day by the temple, and he announces this to the people. He says, the Lord says, I have loved you, and but you say, how have you loved us? And you're going to see when we go through this discussion how the people are in a very lethargic spiritual mode. They don't think God is working. They don't think God cares. The priests are corrupt and cynical. They're abusing the things that God wants of them. So he, they say, how have you loved us? Is not, this is God's answer. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now I want to be careful here how we understand this verse. He loved Jacob. Jacob and Esau were brothers. He loved Jacob, he says, but Esau I have hated. It, it simply indicates a greater intimacy for Jacob than he had for Esau. Uh, in Genesis 29, you'll see the same type of thinking uh, where the Scripture says uh, that Jacob loved Rachel. He didn't have the same feelings or sense of devotion to his other wife, Leah. And it says in the Scripture in Genesis 29 that when the Lord saw that uh, Jacob did not, or that Jacob hated Leah, he opened Leah's womb to have children as a recompense for it. So it's, it's more of a, um, a different level of 
greater intimacy that he had for Jacob as compared to Esau. But Esau proves, Esau's uh, uh, lineage proves that not only did this uh, start at the beginning, but over time, the descendants of Esau have demonstrated their hatred for God's people and their hatred for God. And so therefore, in verse, uh, the second part of verse 3, he says, I have laid waste his hill country, meaning Esau's hill country, and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Edom, if Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. Edom are the descendants of Esau. They are repeatedly the enemies of Jacob and the people, the lineage of Jacob, the lineage of God's people, Israel. So Edom repeatedly are the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament over time. And they can say, we are going to be rebuilding whatever was destroyed. And the Lord's response is, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country because of their behavior, because they are opposed to God and his people. And they are people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now notice God's feelings. He's angry. He's angry at the enemies of his people. And he says in verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the goal of God's action, that the people will see the greatness of God. They will understand how great he is, even in the most difficult of days. Eventually, it will come to pass. Eventually, it will be seen. So the first disputation, the first court section here, is the doubting doubting of God's love because they don't see it in action. And they're not in a good spiritual place. A few weeks ago, uh, uh, Joyce and I were visiting my, our son and uh, daughter-in-law in Austin, Texas. And um, I was talking to their three-year-old son. And he, says, he calls me Papa. He said, Papa, why, why are you and Gigi, Gigi is Joyce, why are you and Gigi here? I said, well, because we wanted to come and see you. We wanted to come and see your, your brother Lennox and your mom and daddy because we love you. And he goes, literally, he said, how, how have you loved us? Just, and I thought, this is just like Malachi. And my immediate response as kind of the patriarch of our family was, well, golly, don't you know? Isn't it obvious? I, and I, I gave, gave, him, gave him a litany of things that I have done and a litany of things that are dealing with our relationship. And then I remember, well, he's only three. He doesn't understand these things. I shouldn't expect him to understand these, these things. I wasn't annoyed with him. But I, I know what it felt like to feel as though he doesn't understand. In this case, God expected them to understand because they had the law, they had all of his writings before, they had the leaders and the priests, but they didn't understand, and what they understood, they didn't like. So that's the first disputation, they were doubting God's love. We get into the second one here. We're going to run fairly quickly through these. This is the the second one, and this is where the priests, where the Lord really, really goes after the priests because they were the ones responsible for leading the people. They had great authority, immense authority in God's word, immense authority of uh, judging whether sacrifices were proper in accordance with God's law or not. They had immense authority. It was not an elected position. They were appointed out of the lineage of Levi, the priesthood. So here in verse 6, again, listen to God's feelings about what's happening with his people. In verse 6, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests. He's going right after the priests. He is going 
to excoriate the priests here. And as I was reading through this, I thought, wow, he's really, he's really tearing up the priests. It's kind of like he's peeling. And then I thought, no, it's not strong enough. It's more like he's scraping the skin off the priesthood to get to the core of what they're all about. And you'll see that. If I am a, a father, where is my honor? Any father can understand that. If I am a master of a house, if I am a, an owner, where is my fear? How come you don't fear me? How come you don't honor me? They are denying God's honor. And they despise him. Um, the Lord says to the priests who despise his name, and but you say, how have we despised your name? They're totally not understanding what they've been doing. They're totally, really spiritually dense. But they shouldn't be. They should understand what they're supposed to be doing. And he's, as I said, he's going after the priests here. He says in verse 7, in answer to the question, how have we despised your name? Again, this is the Lord's disputation. This is his evidence he's citing here. You've despised my name. You've dishonored me. Um, you're not granting me the kind of um, fear that I should get from you. Fear in the sense of uh, fearful of disobeying. Fearful of saying, I don't want to listen to you, God. I'm going to go my own way. That's the kind of fear he's thinking of. But they say, how have we polluted you? And the Lord answered, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. That's a strong word. You're despising my table. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. We can all understand what that looks like. You're treating me so casually. You're bringing things to me in sacrifice that are completely contrary to what my requirements are. Why don't you go give your stuff to the governor in your land? Give it to him and see if he likes it. And how much greater is the Lord than a governor in our human lives? Or a president or a prime minister? You name the position. How much greater should we be careful about how we respond to God than we are in our human relationships? Give it to your governor, he said. That's not what I want. Now, maybe you might be thinking, well, you know, he's kind of sensitive here, isn't he? Isn't God kind of overreacting? You know, so what? They're giving blind animals to sacrifice. And so what? They're giving the lame and the sick animals in sacrifice. So what? Well, I'll tell you why, so what? It's because that wasn't in accordance with God's law. It was totally contrary to what God wants. And I'll just give you a little demonstration of how this is discussed in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Where the, the Lord says in Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much, listen to this, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. You see, it was a picture. The uh, animal sacrifices were to be perfect. They were to be male animals because it was a picture of Christ in his perfection. God wanted perfect animals because it was a precursor of Christ who was the picture of per, who was actually the perfection of sacrifice. Particular, God's rules and laws are particular. In, earlier in Hebrews 8, all these things about the priests and what they were to offer, uh, Hebrews 8, 5, these things, they serve as a copy 
and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. He was shown what was to be required on the mountain, and it was a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. God was particular because his son is perfect. So now maybe we can understand why God was so ticked off at the people, the priests in particular here, in this excoriation of the priests, a very direct, angry ripping into the priests who should have known they were corrupt. You're offering blind animals. You're, doing, you're offering lame and sick. It's, it is evil, he said. Give it to your governor and see if he likes it. Okay, verse 9. How do I, how do I respond to this? How are we to, what are we to do? Well, entreat the favor of God. Remember, this is Malachi talking to the people. You need to entreat or ask for or beg for the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I just need one guy. I need one person to do what I'm telling them to do. There were about 5,000 priests in Israel at this time, all over the country, this small country that was suffering loss. God says, is there any one person who's going to do what I'm wanting them to do? Any even one? Because what you're doing is offering things to me in vain. You see how angry God is and frustrated and unhappy? I have no pleasure in you, he says. I will not accept an offering from your hand. I won't. Well, verse 11, you know what? In essence, he's saying, even if you don't, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. My name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, isn't he a little bit self-centered? Is God self-centered? And so maniacal about his greatness that he has to punitively accuse us. Well, if you're thinking that, if any of us might be thinking that, the problem is that we're thinking about it through our sinful human lens, our sinful human nature, the thing that makes us not want to bend the knee in our flesh to the God of the universe. He is perfectly pure. The day you can make a tree, the day I can make a tree, is the day maybe we'll reconsider this concept. He is perfectly pure. He is gracious to us. The only mystery is why in the world he's interested in any of us. My name will be great even if you don't. My name will be great. Maybe not today in your life, he says to the priests in particular here, but it will be great in my time among the nations. It will be great among the nations in my time. In verse 12, you profane my name when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. Verse 13, well, you say, Oh, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it. That's what they're doing. I, I'm sorry. Imagine. You just imagine how disgusting that is to the Lord. They're like pigs. That's what he's saying. Another translation says you sniff at it like it's terribly burdensome to be here. Oh, what a, what a weariness this is. Can we relate to this? The dailiness of life? Oh, every day I have to get up and do this. Every day, every day, the dailiness of it. And the Lord says, you know, <laughs> if you would consider who the Lord is and what a privilege it is even to breathe our next breath and to enjoy his 
presence. We would not say these things or feel these things. He promises to be with us in trouble, in all of our difficulties, in all the tediousness of this problem we're going through right now, of this plexiglass that's preventing me from getting closer to you, of all that stupid, really, little things in the scheme of life. It's okay. What a weariness this is, the priests say and the people say, and you snort at it, says the Lord. Remember his personality. You bring to me what has been taken by violence, like roadkill. Oh, hey, there's a sheep in the road. I think I'll pick it up and give it as my offering today. No, no, (laughs) no. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering, exclamation point. This you bring as your offering. With intensity, he's saying this. Shall I accept this from your hand? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. It destroys the picture of the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he's so ticked. It destroys the picture, as we saw discussed in Hebrews just a minute or two ago. I am a great king. My name will be feared among the nations, even if you don't do it. It will be. And the ripping and the scraping of the priests continue. And why would he focus here on this big section on the priests? Because the priests, as I said earlier, have the power. They have the authority. They are responsible for the people. They're responsible to teach and lead the people properly according to his law. And they were corrupt, and they didn't do it. And they were, this all had to do, by the way, with money exchanges as well. Um, it had a lot of corruption in it, and I don't have time to get into that, but it was very, very, very wicked. And so the Lord continues in chapter 2. This is going to continue until verse 9 of chapter 2, and I'll run through it rather quickly. So the Lord says, okay, now I'm going to give you a command. If you will not listen... If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name. I want you to stop here for a second. And if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart. That's an interesting phrase. He repeats it again later on in this section. Um, It is similar to Isaiah 57.11 where um, Isaiah uh, uh, criticizes the people for not taking his words to heart. I think the New American Standard has a really fine translation here where instead of take it to heart, it says, nor give me a thought. You're not taking a tart. You're not giving me a thought about what I think. If you don't care what I think, you're going to go sideways. You're going to go down a really bad path. Again, his personality. See why it's overwhelming if we're taking this seriously? If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart or give me a thought to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you. I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart or you do not give me a thought. Well, that doesn't sound like Jesus, does it? We have a roundy culture of Christianity, I believe, in our country, in North America, where Jesus is soft and pliable. It is really a horrible picture because the fear of God, the the sense that, you know what, he is not to be messed with. It's gone. It's gone. That doesn't sound like Jesus. Well, I'm going to tell you, it doesn't only sound like Jesus. That is Jesus talking. It is him saying these things. So where do we go with this? It is like Jesus to say these things. Listen to Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there. I'll give you a few examples. He's talking about the day of the Lord that will come. 
He says the master of that servant, he's giving a picture of what it would be like. He is the master, we are supposed to be his servants. And he says he'll come when he doesn't expect him, and in an hour when he doesn't expect him. And what's the master going to do when he sees him doing these wicked things? He's going to cut him into pieces. Jesus says this. Matthew 24, check it out yourself later. The master will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the weeping of gnashing of teeth is repeated in several sections of the New Testament. And it's not a picture of uh, repentance from sin. It's a, a picture of, I don't deserve to be here in hell apart. I need my pleasures back. I want my stuff back. I hate you, God, is what they are saying. That's the picture of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's not repentance. It's anger, continued anger, just multiplied in hell because there's no restraint in hell of wickedness as there is today. Don't worry. It's, it's not all bad. It'll get better. So my argument is, this is just not like Jesus in these words. This is Jesus. The Logos of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Logos of the Trinity is, spoken, is speaking right here, and that's Jesus. We need to care about God's honor and care about how we live and what we think and what we put into our minds and how we think about people. Continuing, verse 3 of chapter 2. Again, this is an um, excoriation, a scraping of the priests who are responsible for leading the people. The people are still responsible, but it's a scraping of the skin off of the priests. Listen to what he says next. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. Are you ready for the next thing? I will spread dung on your faces. Is that rough? The dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. The dung, we all know what dung is. It's the content of intestines. It is the part of the animal that was thrown out far away from the camp because it's garbage. It's not useful. You shall be taken away with the dung. What a picture. Graphic, rough, tough. God is angry at the priests. Not only am I going to take you away, but you're going to be taken away and that is going to be on your faces. That's how disgusted I am with you as, he's, as you can see from his words. Why is he doing that in verse 4? Well, so that you should know that I have sent this command to you and that my covenant with Levi may stand. Remember, Levi is the son of Jacob where the Levitical priesthood came into view, came into line with certain things that God wanted from the Levites, the priests, my covenant with him, this is where we should focus on what is good. This is what we should look to do. My covenant with him, he says, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me in a good way. Not that God is capricious or, gee, I wonder what he's going to do next. He's going to knock me over. Is he going to go get me? No, it's a, a loving fear that I love my father, and so I'm going to listen to him. Because I love him, I'm going to honor him. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me, see the relationship, and see how peaceful and delighted God is with this particular person and his line who follow him. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. That's the job of the priest, the intermediary between God and man. That was the priest. 
You have man, the priest brought things to God as a stand between God and the men and women of his people. The lips of the priest should guard knowledge. This is part of the jobs he's charged with doing. But you have turned aside, verse 8, many have stumbled. You've caused many to stumble at your instruction. Okay, I get the picture. You've corrupt. Okay, I get the picture. No, no, you're going to listen to this. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi. You've corrupted it. It's disgusting to him. It's disgusting to Jesus. So much for the roundiness of Christ. This is him talking right here. I have made you, I make you despised and debased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. The third disputation. People deny God's faithfulness. Verse 10, chapter 2. Malachi says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Again, he's speaking of the relationship we are to have with God the Father. He is one God and he's created us and so we owe him. In other words, he owns us. If that's true, he says, well then why, why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which we, we saw. Proverbs 25, 19 talks about faithlessness. Confidence in a faithless man is like a bad tooth or a foot out of joint. Probably everybody has either sprained your ankle or had a tooth problem. And if it's severe enough, you can't hardly think about anything else. When you put your confidence in a faithless person, that's what it's like. It's like trying to eat when your tooth is just throbbing in pain. Or it's like trying to walk when your foot is not just sprained. It's out of joint. You can't do it. If you're putting confidence in a person who's faithless, that's what it's like. And that's what Malachi is saying the people are doing to one another. And they're profaning the covenant Here we go, verse 11. Here's another charge. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Marriage to unbelievers. Uh, uniting yourself with unbelievers. There may be re- many reasons for this that we're not going to get into. Uh, uh, one of them was monetary. Uh, marrying the daughters of foreign gods, uh, uh, the daughters of the pagans, may have been uh, some monetary benefit and quite... Um, Quite honestly, there was also a physical element to it. Men wanted to go and get daughters of foreign gods, of the pagans, for physical reasons. You can understand what I'm saying. May the Lord cut off, this is verse 12, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Again, God remains angry. He brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, even though he's done this. And here we go. This is the second thing you've done. Okay, you marry, you marry uh, uh, the daughters of foreign gods, of the pagans, and you also cover the altar with tears. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accept you, accepts it with favor from your hand. Weeping, groaning, which, by the way, the pagan religions encourage. 
Elijah, for example, when he was going after the prophets of Baal, the more intensely the prophets screamed and yelled and cut themselves, they thought their God Baal would hear them, or Baal would hear them, and it doesn't work that way. Emotion is fine. Even in our worship, emotion is fine, but consider what is the emotion for. Mourning over sin is good. It is good. We just wonder and think about what is the motive of our emotion. We think we're, we're buying some kind of favor with God by being emotional. It doesn't buy him anything, buy anything from him because he sees what's in our hearts. But he no longer regards the offering of their hands and they do not, he doesn't accept it. And then they say, why does he not? These are cynical questions. They don't care. They're just having an argument. Why doesn't he accept our stuff? Okay, because the Lord was, this is Malachi talking, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You made a promise to her. Now, listen, I know very well that some women leave their husbands, but any buddy who pays attention to male-female relationships, to man-woman relationships, knows that men sometimes cannot, can lack the ability to control themselves. This is what we call aversion divorce. A man marries a woman, and then he gets tired of her. That's quite the picture. He's, he's just tired of her. He's tired of her physically. He's tired of her whatever. He's tired of this, everything. He's just tired of her. And so I, I'm tired of you. I'm going to go get somebody else. And God says, you know, that's wrong. That's worse than wrong. It's disgusting. Let that be a warning to us. You have been faithless, like a bad tooth or a foot out of joint. You've been faithless to the wife of your youth, and she's your companion by covenant. You promised one another. Hold true to your promise. God finds it reprehensible. What is God seeking? This is, this is really good. He's seeking godly offspring. This is one of the things he's seeking in marriage. Godly offspring. That kind of is self-explanatory. So, if you haven't done this, he says, guard yourselves, verse 15, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Do not be faithless to the wife of, youth, of your youth. No aversion divorce. It doesn't matter if you're tired of her. You get untired of her. You get excited about her. You look to spend time with her. That's applicable today just like any day. And it was applicable then as it is today. Fourth disputation, denying God's righteousness. Verse 17, chapter 2, this is where it begins, this fourth court discussion. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Hmm, I don't get it. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Is that not applicable today? Uh, I remember we, I spoke about Habakkuk, and they were asking the same, why, why, why is there no justice? Why is this? Why is this happening? And God rarely answers that question. God does love justice and righteousness. There's no doubt about it. But the people of Malachi's time were saying that everybody who does evil is good. They're getting away with it. What's the big deal? Oh, it's such a weariness to me, all these things that I'm saying this myself. Uh, uh, quoting back in chapter 1, it's such a weariness. <laughs> Snorting at it. Where is the God of justice? He's not doing anything. It doesn't matter. We should be able to live how we want. Chapter 3, verse 1, God answers. Behold, 
God says, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me in the Lord whom you seek. By the way, that's a sarcastic comment from the Lord. They are not seeking him. It's sarcasm. He's using sarcasm to get at their rebellion. Jesus uses sarcasm. And the Lord whom you seek, but they're not seeking him. He's being sarcastic. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is the messenger? Well, it's John the Baptist. If you look at Matthew 11, uh, 10, he speaks of the messenger. Matthew eleven ten. This is of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It's a direct quote from Malachi 3, 1. It's John the Baptist. And you notice, by the way, from the time this promise was made until John the Baptist came, you know how many years? 400. God was prophetically silent between the writing of Malachi until the coming of John the Baptist in Matthew, recorded in Matthew, 400 years. That's like if, if, if God made a promise to us in 1620, 400 years later, we're saying, where is this promise? Five or six generations later. So do not be discouraged by his evident absence sometimes. It's just the way he works. He's still there, and he's maintaining his promise to us. It will happen. He will be honored. The messenger of the covenant, he is coming, says the Lord. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He is like the refiner's fire and fuller's soap, a cleansing picture, fire, and really lye, L-Y-E, a, a cleansing agent. Soap didn't exist back then, but that's the translation, a refining and a cleansing of the people. That's what he's going to be doing. They'll bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is what pleases the Lord. The offerings of Judah in verse 4 and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Again, his personality, his sense of what he likes and doesn't like. I was in a meeting many years ago now with some men, and uh, we were going back and forth about whatever the issue was. I have no idea. I don't remember what it was about. But one of the older men of the group said, you know, we're going to do this this way, because the Lord likes it that way. And I had never heard anybody say that before. This was a long time ago. I had never heard anybody say that before. Because the Lord likes it. That'll make a difference in your life. Verse 4, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. He likes it. He likes it. If he likes it, you better do it. Be sensitive to it. Take into account, give him a thought. This will make all the difference in the world when we, when we go to our workplace or we talk with our neighbors or we do any number of things in this world. What does the Lord think of this? What does he think of this? How do you feel about this? It's a relationship. That's what he wants. And I know many of you have that. It's just a reminder, exhortation here from Malachi. He, he gives a list of some of the things that people are doing, the sorcery, verses five, verse 5 there in chapter 3. And that is evidence of no fear of him. Let's move on to the... Um, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let's, let's go to cha uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the last verse of this particular disputation. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. He says, look, 
I feel the same way about sin today as I did before. And Jesus is saying today, I feel the same way about sin today as I did before. And I'll feel the same way about it tomorrow, a hundred years from now, whatever it is, as I do today and as I did in the Old Testament era thousands of years ago. It doesn't matter. He may respond differently today. He's free to respond as he chooses. He's the sovereign king. But because he's merciful to us, because he's patient with us, we are not consumed. So, moving on to the next disputation. Starting in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes. You can see that it's been going on for a while. It's not just recent. Their fathers did the same thing. They've turned aside from his statutes. They've not kept them. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. Fix it. Fix it. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God, he says? Yet you are robbing me. And they say, how have we robbed you? And the answer, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Everybody's doing this. But bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me through the test, says the Lord of hosts. I will not see if I won't open the windows of heaven to you and pour down to you a blessing until there's no more need. It was an agricultural society, so rain was a blessing on the crops. That's what he's talking about. So the tithes, today, I know in this church and many solid Bible churches don't teach the legal system of the tithe, that 10% of your income needs to go to the church. We don't teach that, and I know it's not taught here at CFC. What is taught is found in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15, which Bill alluded to earlier, in the prayer for the offering that we give with a joyful heart, a happy heart, a generous heart. It's also found in 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonian Christians, which is a model of Christian giving. You give happily, you give generously, and you give sacrificially. Happy, generous, sacrificial. Don't rob God. Be generous. Maybe we need to give more than 10%, maybe less depending on your circumstances, but see what God would have to say to you. There's no promise that he's going to make us rich, by the way, if we're generous financially. It's a promise that he will be delighted with us and we'll get many kinds of blessings that we don't even know. Maybe not financially, maybe there is, but there's, maybe there is, but there's no promise of that, a guarantee of that. Let's move on to the last disputation, reviling God's grace. And they're complaining here in chapter 3, verse 13. He says, uh, they say, your words have been hard against me. The Lord is saying this, your words have been hard against me. You can sense kind of the anguish that he has there. And, but you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? What does it do for me? What does it get me if I'm obedient to him, if I'm always trying to keep him in mind and give him a thought and walk with him? And all this wickedness is going on. What good is it for me? You ever think that? Verse 15, And now we call the arrogant blessed, those who deny God. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. I can relate to this. We call the arrogant blessed. I know when, when Joyce and I live in a, in a neighborhood where I don't think there's any people, not only no Christians, I don't think anybody even goes to church anywhere. And here we are, Sunday mornings, every Sunday, well, 
before the pandemic problem. Every Sunday, there we are, getting up and going to church. Every Tuesday, getting up and getting ready for our growth group, and all these crazy Christians come into our house. And I'm telling you what, what is the profit of our doing this? Why? Why would we do this over the years? Why? Well, you know why. If you know Jesus, you know why. I don't have to tell you. We love him, and we want to serve him, and he likes it. He's pleased with this. But they're calling the arrogant blessed. Evildoers who ignore God, who laugh at God, who laugh at his people, they're, they're prospering, and they put God to the test, and they, there's no repercussions for them. No repercussions whatsoever. But you know what? Here's the good part, starting in verse 16. God always has a remnant. There's always a remnant of people throughout the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, it's a remnant of people who remain faithful to Him regardless of the circumstances, regardless, regardless of what everybody else is doing. That's what he's going to talk about in verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord, even amidst all of this garbage and stuff, there are those who feared the Lord. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They were there. They're here in our country. They're here in this church, and they're here in our communities. Maybe we are a minority in our post-Christian culture, and we are, but they're there. Our job is to find them and have fellowship with them, just like we are doing now. God pays attention. He knows and a book of remembrance was written before him. The names of those who are in this group, this remnant of people who love God and seek to walk and talk and live for him. They are there. They are here. Those who fear him and esteem his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make, when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. He loves us. The scripture says that when a an unbeliever attacks his people. It's like, it's like the unbeliever is sticking his finger in God's eye. Not only just his eye, but in the pupil of his eye, the very center of God's eye. He likens that as the feeling he has when people abuse his people. They will not get away with that eternally. I will take up my, my treasured possession. I will spare them as a man spares the son whom, who serves him. Then you shall see... Here we go. This is the promise, and we can rest in this too. Verse 18, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Individual knowledge, individual. I'm responsible for my own relationship with him. Each of us individually is responsible. I'm going to run through the end of this because we're, we're close to the end of our time available. The day is coming, he says in chapter 4. It is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. Um, it's described and promised in many sections of the New Testament. Um, you who fear my name, you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go about leaping like calves. You shall tread down on the wicked. They will be ashes under your feet. On that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And again, remember, 400 years between the end of this book and the, uh, uh, the writing of Matthew, this is a reference to the end of days when the Lord comes back in judgment and righteousness. Remember the law of my servant Moses. Remember and do not forget to obey. I will send to you Elijah. Again, that's a reference to John the Baptist in the awesome day of the Lord. Luke, oh, Luke 1.17 quotes this very verse. 
He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, six disputations. God makes a charge. The people rebut, and then God lays out his case, backing up his charge. And the idea, the big idea I hope you'll grasp is the personality of the Lord, things that he likes, things that he hates, things that he despises, things that he delights in, things that he doesn't care about. Because if you get that, it will change your life. It will change your life because he wants relationship with us as a great father and master and king. Amen. Thank you.